Would you turn with me uh, to the letter to the Hebrews? And we will start reading in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. I think it's important to remember that you know these, these letters were given to the church to be read out loud. And um, <clears throat> so let's read a few verses here, starting at Hebrews chapter 2. We'll go into the first part of chapter 3. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And then verse 10, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise, and again I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Therefore, holy brethren... Partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. The letter to the Hebrews is a unique letter. First of all, neither the human author or the specific recipients are mentioned here. Traditionally, it's been accepted that Hebrews was written by the Apostle Paul to Christian Jews in Jerusalem before it was destroyed in AD 70. But as we come to this letter today and consider what it teaches, it's quite clear, first and foremost, that this is a divine letter that was given by God to his church. In this book, the deity and eternality of Jesus Christ, his earthly trials, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation, his intercession are all set out. The superiority of the old covenant, I'm sorry, of the new covenant to the old covenant, with Jesus Christ being our great high priest is presented in tremendous detail. Hebrews contains both tremendous encouragements as well as the most fearful warnings. In coming to this letter, we see the immensity of God and our own smallness. 
In chapter 1, God has spoken to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. And now, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, Jesus Christ. Chapter 1 reveals Christ to be the creative power of God the Father, the one who upholds all things by his power, the one who is the heir of all things. He's the perfect representation of God the Father to man. He's worshipped by angels in the presence of the Father. The author in uh, chapter 1 quotes Psalm 45, Psalm 102, and attributes the titles Elohim, El, Theos, and Kyrios to Christ, indicating that Christ, Jesus, is divinely equal with God the Father. Read uh, starting in verse 10 of chapter 1, and again this is referring to Christ, and you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. Jesus Christ is eternal and unchanging and uncreated. In chapter 3, we see that Moses was a faithful servant in God's house, but Christ was a faithful son over God's house. And this would have been an important distinction for Christian Jews to recognize. So much is made of the supremacy, of the superiority of Jesus Christ in the book of Hebrews. And we're forced at the very beginning to answer the question, do we believe that Jesus Christ is actually the one true God? Do we believe that he is consubstantial with the Father, that he is of the same divine essence as the Father. And that is vital. There was a tendency of the recipients of this letter to soften the person of Jesus Christ, to think of him in some heavenly way, in an angelic sense, but not as he actually is. That was the danger then, and it's still the danger today. The great lie of Satan is to lead us to a false Christ. Yes, you can believe that Jesus actually existed. You can believe that he said wise things, that he was gracious, that he helped people. That's all fine. So long as you do not actually believe that he was truly God. When you consider the cults, the primary issue there is that they refuse to believe in the totality of Jesus Christ. Right? The so-called Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus Christ was a man. They believe that he was the Son of God. They believe that he died on the cross. But they refuse to believe in the eternality of Jesus Christ. They hold that Jesus, as the Son of God, was a created being. That his divinity is not equal to that of the Father. There was a point at which the Son of God, as the second person of the Trinity, did not exist, they profess. It's the heresy of Arianism which the church has rejected long ago, repeated again. And that's how these cults are, constantly reintroducing heresies that the church has long ago rejected. And I don't think this is a technical point. You see, if the one true God did not die on the cross in the person of Jesus Christ, then we're still in our sins. 
There is no salvation without a divinely perfect atonement for sin. And for this very reason, at the beginning of chapter 2, we find that we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. There is a very great danger of drifting away, of drifting past the truth. A woman recently came to my door claiming that she was once a Baptist, but, but now she's a Jehovah's Witness. See, she's drifted past the truth, away from the truth, assuming she ever really heard it at all. So the first point in the book of Hebrews is that Jesus Christ is God himself. And that is the essential point as we approach the text that we read earlier. Chapter 2, verse 10, It was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. Jesus Christ is the one for whom and through whom are all things. He is God himself. The gravity of the deity of Jesus Christ must be the first thing that is grasped. Jesus is God. And he did something that was unimaginable. Verse 14 of chapter 2. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, God himself, likewise also partook of the same. Considering the person of Christ is walking on a razor-thin edge, you diminish his deity, and there is no sacrifice for sin once for all. You're still under law. You're still obligated to offer sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sin. And that was the, the point here to these Christian Jews. Sacrifices which can never make the conscience clean. You diminish, on the other hand, the humanity of Jesus Christ, and there is no substitutionary atonement for sin. God became a man in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was both the son of Adam and the son of man, Luke chapter 3 mentions, both the son of Adam and the son of God. In verse 17 of chapter 2, it says that he had to be made like his brethren in all things. He was just like you and me on earth, being tempted in every way that we have been tempted, yet without sin. He existed in eternity past as the word of God that was both with the Father and was God himself, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. John tells us. As a child, he grew. He became strong physically. He increased in wisdom. He lived in submission to Mary and Joseph, who were sinners. He was fatigued. He required sleep. He felt compassion. As a man, he exercised faith in his father. That's an incredible thing that's mentioned here in Hebrews 2.13. And again, I will put my trust in him. That's Jesus Christ putting trust in his Father. He needed frequently to slip away to quiet places to pray to his Father. 
But the life of Jesus on earth was also a life of pain and suffering. And throughout his earthly minister, Luke tells us he was daily in the temple and men were trying to destroy him, to lay hands on him, to, to spy on him, to trick him, to catch him. Isaiah says that he was a man of sorrow. The psalm, Psalm 35, says that he was repaid evil for good to the bereavement of his soul. He knew grief. He was hated without cause. He emptied himself of his, of his glory and became not just a man, but he became the lowest man. He became a slave, it says. He took upon himself the form of a bondservant. Literally, that's, that's a slave. From the highest heights of heaven, he plunged himself to the greatest depths of humanity. The perfect Son of God, who knew no sin, became sin on our behalf. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The Son of Man did not only come in the flesh, he suffered in the flesh. Verse 10 says that through sufferings he was fitted, he was made perfect to be the author of our salvation. So it was not that a wise man died on the cross. It was not that a moral leader died on the cross. It was not that a created deity died on the cross. The second person of the Trinity, very God of very God, one of a kind, not made, of one substance with the Father, he himself became a man and suffered and died. God became man and was polluted in his body, with our sin. So Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is man. Jesus Christ suffered in the flesh. Why? Why did God suffer in the flesh? Verse 14, chapter 2. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood... He himself likewise also partook of the same. God has stepped into humanity in the person of Jesus Christ for you. For the church. He has not come to help some heavenly beings. He's not come to help angels. He has come to help the seed of Abraham. And that is you. That is the church. He gave himself in order to bring many sons to glory. He means to cleanse us of our sin, to set us apart from the world, to sanctify us for himself, to become the author of our salvation. It is a tremendous mystery, but scripture says that it was fitting for him to suffer. It was essential that he suffer and die to become the author of our salvation, that through death he might render powerless it says there, as we read, that he might render powerless him who had the power of death that is the devil. In John 12, Jesus was foretelling his death. He's troubled in his soul, and he asks, What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. He says, Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Scripture says that through the death 
of the God-man, Jesus Christ, Satan's power over death was abolished. It was, it was nullified. Christ was made only for a little while lower than the angels, right? And through the suffering of death, what do we see? He is now crowned with glory and honor. Jesus is alive. He's risen from the dead. If all these things are true, and if you are in Jesus Christ, do you really believe that Satan has no power over you? Scripture here says that all those who are outside of Jesus Christ live all their lives enslaved to fear of death. But in Christ, there is no fear of death. Psalm 116 says, You have rescued my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. He has loosed our bonds. Jesus Christ is alive in heaven. He has made propitiation for our sins. He has satisfied the, the righteous requirement of the Father. The greatest possible help has come to us in Jesus Christ, he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. But uh, Scripture does not proclaim some rose-colored picture here, some rose-colored theology. And things in this world are not as they should be. Right? If you look at chapter 2 there, which, which quotes uh, Isaiah, I'm sorry, Psalm 8, at the end of verse 8 of chapter 2, it's talking of man, and it says, For in subjecting all things to him that is to man, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. The reality is that most things in this world are not subject to us, right? We do not have control over most things in this world. Hebrews, later on, records that the church throughout history has been ill-treated, has been tortured, has been mocked, has been imprisoned, has been stoned, sawn in two, stabbed to death, left to wander in destitute places, in deserts, in holes in the ground. Victory is ours in Jesus Christ. We've been freed from the power of death. He is our forerunner, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. But right now, things are very, very wrong in this world. And Scripture recognizes this head on. There is no denial of these things coming to Scripture. Ephesians even mentions, of course, that Satan is the prince of the power the heir of this world, right? That he's at work in the sons of disobedience. We look around us and we do not see yet all things in subjection to us. But what does it go on to say there, verse 9? We do not yet see all things in subjection to us. But look there, chapter 2, verse 9. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels. We do see Jesus Christ. We do see the one who has known all our difficulties, all our weaknesses and sorrows, who now lives to intercede for us. Jesus Christ, our merciful and faithful high priest, who is able 
to come to our aid when we are tempted. Verse 18 of chapter 2. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order, right? Christ has conquered death, and so will we. Well, we've considered a lot of things as outcomes of the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ, of his suffering, his death, his resurrection. He brings many sons to glory. He becomes the author of our salvation. He takes away Satan's power over death. He frees us from slavery to fear death. He's come to our aid. He's our help. He has become a merciful and faithful high priest. He makes propitiation for our sin. Well, one final consideration. The outcome of God the Father sending his Son into the world is that God is not ashamed of you who are in Christ Jesus. Look there in verse 11 of chapter 2. For both he who sanctifies, that is Jesus Christ, that is God the Father, that is our one true God, and those who are sanctified are all from one. That's literally what it is, all from one. The implication is one Father. If you're in Jesus Christ, your Father is Jesus Christ's Father. These are incredible things. I mean, these are things that, that strike you as almost incorrect theologically. Can we really say something like that? I'm not saying that. That's what this letter says right here. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. What did Jesus say to Mary after he had risen from the dead in John 20? He said, go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my father and your father and my God and your God. Because of Jesus Christ, God is not ashamed to be called your God. Hebrews goes on to say that, chapter 11. Well, this is such a vital point that the, the author here of this letter doesn't just say it in passing. He takes time to prove to us that this is not some new concept, that actually Scripture has in other places also proclaimed this. And so he pauses there at the end of chapter 11 to say, I want to give you proofs that this is so. And he recalls two things, Psalm 22 and then Isaiah 8. And if you read through Psalm 22, you see right away that it is a prophecy of the suffering of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ, in this psalm, is forsaken of God. He's sneered at and mocked by men. He is alone. He is without strength. He is surrounded by evildoers. And in the midst of this suffering, what do we see is on the mind of our Savior. In verse 22 of Psalm 22, he says, I will tell of your name 
to my brethren. Right? In the midst of his suffering, Jesus Christ is thinking of the brethren. He's thinking of you. That should be a tremendous comfort to know that now we have access to come to the God who's not ashamed of us, who thinks of us. He goes on then here to quote Isaiah 8. And the theme there of the section is there is a believing remnant that is called to humility, called to fear the Lord. God is hiding his face from Israel. And the full significance is that Christ says, I and the children whom God has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts. Jesus Christ, there in Isaiah 8, is a stone to strike. He's a rock to stumble over. And he has linked with his brothers in the flesh in revealing the glory of God to the world. I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders. See, he partakes of our humanity. He brings us to God. He uses us for the glory of God. He doesn't just leave us outside. He brings us into his house. He's not ashamed. Well, what is the conclusion then of all these things that we've considered? That Jesus Christ is truly God. That Jesus Christ lowered himself to become a slave. That he suffered on our behalf. He tasted death for us. That now he lives. Right now he is lifted high, crowned with glory and honor, that he is able to come to our help. What is the conclusion that's given there in chapter 3, verse 1? The outcome of all that we've seen should be what? Therefore, the author again calls us holy brethren. Right? We are holy brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Well, Lord willing, next week we'll pick up in chapter 3. Amen.